Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, welcome to another episode of Book Shambles, a live episode this week that was actually recorded uh, towards the end of last year at the Manchester Science Festival uh, at the Science Museum or the Museum of Science and Industry in Manchester with Robin and Professor Sophie Scott and Charles Fernahoe. But before we get to that, a reminder, we've got one more work in progress gig of uh, Chris Lintot and Steve Pretty's Universe of Music coming up on April 3rd at King's Place. Thanks to everyone that came along, uh, including lots of our brilliant Patreon supporters to the first event. Tickets for that are at the Cosmic Shambles and the King's Place website, which is the same place you can also get tickets for this year's edition of Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People, four normal evening shows at King's Place, a family matinee, and then we've got another two shows at the Lowry in Salford slash Manchester. And in the last week, we announced the first batch of guests that are going to be joining Robin at those shows. Obviously, there are going to be lots and lots more guests announced and some surprises as well as we get closer to those gigs. But some of the names already on the bill include... Tim O'Brien and Helen Chersky and Matt Parker and Josie Long, John Butterworth, Simon Singh, Susie Gage and lots more as well. So go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons to check that out. Thanks as always to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash bookshambles if you would like to pledge to help support what we do here at Bookshambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network. Or you can pick yourself up something from the online shop as well. Signed copies of Robin's book, book bags, badges, art prints, all sorts of stuff on there for you to check out and ideally purchase. Or you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes. That really does help us out a lot more than you can probably imagine uh, the way the Apple Podcasts algorithms work. So just search for Book Shambles on Apple Podcasts or iTunes and leave us a five-star review. You can do that now if you want. Uh, pause the episode, go do that, then come back and listen to Robin and Charles and Sophie. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles, which now in the traditional post-baby world of Josie Long has no Josie Long in it whatsoever because she's found happiness, which is a terrible mistake for a comedian. Um, so she, but uh, she's in Glasgow at this very moment. So I'm going to start off by... I wanted to start... I'm, this is a slightly long thing to say. The, the book that I wrote, I'm a Joke and So Are You... Um, I want to start off talking about children's brains. Now, for me, I, when I wrote the book, uh, there was something that I wrote about, which I, it was, at the time, I kind of felt almost embarrassed to even consider it to be trauma. But when I was, uh, just before I was three years old, I was in a car crash, and uh, I thought it was my fault, because I was a three-year-old boy, about to be three. I was behind the passenger seat looking for a toy machine gun. 
I thought that, so I didn't see the lights coming towards it. The car came on the wrong side of the road, smashed into our car, and me linking the fact that I thought, oh, I must have caused that because I was looking for my toy gun. And my mum was then in a coma for, for quite a while. When she came out of that coma, uh, she didn't initially know that either myself or my sisters existed because she'd woken up at a time before we existed. And various things happened after that. But it's uh, one of the strangest things in writing the book was the fact that my family never knew that I thought it was my fault. So I had this strange mm -hmm. thing where uh, my dad, who's 88 years old, when I spoke to him just after he'd read the first chapter, at the end of the conversation he said, why didn't you tell me? Because I could have done something about it. And it's, which was, I felt very guilty about, in a certain, because it's like, I, I don't, he couldn't have done anything. But now, having discussed this issue with more people, it turns out, Technically, being a three-year-old who thinks you nearly killed your mother, who was then in a coma for quite a long period of time, uh, can count as trauma at the age of three. So, um, I, I just want to, in terms of, and I'm also interested because I was three, my sisters were seven and ten, and I believe that what happened on that occasion uh, affected us all in a very different way because our brains were at different stages. Now, is that just me talking pseudoscientifically or an event like that... Uh, Will we see at each different stage of childhood that there is likely to be perhaps some different reaction? Or? Well, I'll, I'll speak briefly because Charles knows a lot more about child development than me, but it's true to say that it's, you know, these things can affect you, but also longer-term things that have... You know, it, it, it doesn't have to be one short thing that's a traumatic event. Trauma, deprivation, exposure to things that can really fundamentally change you over a longer time scale is, is more traditionally associated with things that would have a longer-term effect. I'm not saying it was non-traditional view, therefore it shouldn't happen. And it's not going... As you say, the stage that you're at, the, the age that you're at, and just the, the fact that you thought it was your fault because that's what children do. You, you, when you're at that age, there's something upsetting. You were doing something that was slightly unusual... You kind of, you know, that, that sensation that the guilt is somehow, that you're feeling is, is actually being made manifest because it's real, is hard, very hard to get around. You can't regulate your emotions at that age. You can't find a resolution for it. Something bad did happen. So it's not, it's not the degree of trauma or even the time scale of the trauma that necessarily has to be the thing that determines it, or even just your age. If it was sorts of random, if you'd been looking at the car, there might have been some other, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have made any of it any easier, but it might simply have been different. This is, where, this is where the scientists are here to tell you that science doesn't have the answers. I mean, mm. you've picked two real goodies here. The mystery of childhood amnesia, in other words, the, the fact, the phenomenon of us being unable to remember what happened to us in the first few years of life, and memory for trauma. Two of those things are really, really hard to understand, very complex issues. If anybody tells you they understand why we can't remember our early childhoods, they're they're having you on, actually, because we, don't, we really don't understand it. If I asked everybody in this room when their earliest memory dates from, so I think of your first memory, tell me when it happened, and if we put all that information together, very few people would remember anything from before about age three. Then you see this massive spike when suddenly pretty much everybody starts dating their first memory to. So that tells us a few really interesting things. It tells us that memory is a really hard thing to do. It's a machine, if you like, with many moving parts. It takes a long time 
in development for all those parts to be working together. And various things have been put forward. There's explanations of the missing link that has to be there before you can start doing it. Language is one of them. The ability to tell a story is another. It's not simply a matter of your brain developing. Because here's a curious thing. If you were a room full of eight-year-olds and I asked you the same question, I asked you to tell me your earliest memory, you would remember quite a bit further back. So it's not, it's not that your brain just isn't functioning properly or isn't ready to store information. You can do it when you're a child. You can rem- remember much more of your babyhood. But we can't do it as adults. And I just don't think we have an answer to that question. That is quite a heartbreaking thing, isn't it, if anyone here with children will know that, that point where your child, sometimes at the age of five, will tell you these incredibly richly detailed things about you. Oh, you, can't, you remember that thing when you were two years old? Oh, that's amazing. You know, I can't, and then one day you go, you remember you telling me that? St- oh, did I do that? And it's gone. Yeah. That, that, that's a... Uh, and so in, ter- in terms of, without it being the kind of neurobollocks area, the, that bit where we're kind of... It's a bit like Alan Moore, when Alan Moore can be very playful with it. He goes, well, we don't have an answer for this. So let's have a look at some possibilities, some little bits of conjecture. What do you find the most alluring possible idea, Charles? Do you have any particular one where you think, well, do you know what? One day we might get the evidence for that, but that's an intriguing idea about... Do you mean about childhood? Yeah. About this question of why we don't remember our, our childhoods. I think a few things need to be in place, and I think some, possibly the last bit that has to be in place is the ability to t- tell a story. There's fascinating research now on, on narrative abilities in general and how they work in the brain on how children learn to uh, use stories, to tell their own stories, to understand stories, and so on. And it may be that one of the things that we need to have in place is just that sense of narrative, that that ability to organise information sequentially, one thing after another. It turns out it's a really valuable way of just organising information, including the information about our lives. And it seems to tie in with when children start to get that narrative sense. It's also very strongly shaped by social processes. So we've done some, we published some research recently where um, we looked at particularly mothers and their babies and how the mothers would talk to their babies and try to make sense of their babies as having uh, me- mental states, of having, as having minds of their own. And we found that that related to how rich uh, the baby's memories were later on. And there's quite a lot of research now showing that if you talk to children about the past, you talk to them about stuff that happened during the day, those babies grow into children who have a better, sort of more organised narrative sense. They tell richer narratives about their own pasts. Sophie, you've got a, a, a child. Did you find that you... Because there's lovely stories of Charles Darwin. With all of his children, he basically... When I say experimented on them, uh, I, I mean he would just... He, would, you know, he, would, he was making notes after peekaboo. He was making all of these different things. He would play games. And, and if anything, rather than make him a cold scientist, when you, when you read the memories of, of his children and, and, and his own books, and it, it seemed to bring a wonderful closeness. Did you find yourself, when you were first... You know, stage by stage, you think, I'm almost bringing my work home now, but let's observe him. <laughs> let's place him back in the box. There was an element of that. There was... Um, because I, I, one of the things I work on is laughter, and laughter doesn't emerge around when, when babies are born. So they, laughter kind of comes in probably around the time we would be born if we were carried to full term, because human babies are born very early to make, make it possible for them to be born at all. And I was like, 
laugh, you bastard. I will tickle you and you will laugh. I'm not even being funny about this. I absolutely insist that this happens. I'm going to get past this one. But also things like um, um, my son didn't really talk until he was nearly two and a half. He could say, no, mum, and he had a word which was... <coughs> which is used for everything else. Cheese, clocks, aeroplanes, dogs... <laughs> And he pointed it on you. And he, he kind of tell he understood what I was saying, so I wasn't that worried. And then he started nursery, and nursery were like, no, you've got to talk. And so he's, all right then, you know. And I wasn't worried about that because, you know, because I can imagine if I wasn't a scientist, I'd have been terrified by this. He's not speaking at all. Um, but he... I know that the tales on distribution are incredibly wide in, in development. They're phenomenally wide. So it was, you know, if he hadn't been understanding what I was saying, I would have worried more. But it was, it was quite helpful being a scientist then. He's really made up for it now. We had a he very has. long conversation about the android him. invasion the other day, yes. as you know. The, um, there's that lovely story about which is often they say it was Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein didn't speak until he was four years old. He'd never spoke, and then one day he was given some soup, and he went, the soup is too hot. And they went, oh, Albert, but you've never spoken before. Why now? <laughs> well, until now, everything has been satisfactory. The... Uh, <laughs> It's generally, though, used for any genius. That, that, that's one of those things, you know, you can just pass around. But, Charles, you, you, you're, uh, well, the first book of yours that I read, uh, Baby in the Mirror, was you following the first three years of your daughter. What did you learn from watching that? It was very interesting you saying that about, you know, this, this obsession that we have with children growing up at the right time and doing the right doing things at the, at the in the appropriate sequence and at the right age because lots of people said to me oh you've written a book about children you're going to tell me how my um how my child is supposed to develop you know as if there's some given timetable the first thing you learn as a parent is that children especially a parent of two you know the children are so different they everybody's child is different they're all individual people they're finding their own way and you know you, I would say to people, look, if your child is not talking at, you know, 18 months or whatever, just don't, you know, if, if there's lots of checks and balances in place, there are lots of, you know, the, the health service has all sorts of ways of checking these things out. You don't need to worry about it. Just enjoy the process of parenting. And that's what I tried to capture mm. this book. I was presented with this phenomenal, this, this, this emotional phenomenon of becoming a parent for the first time. I had this background in developmental psychology, so I'd studied this stuff. I knew what the theory was. You know, I knew that we'd learned some things about how children's minds are supposed to develop. And I am a writer, so I wanted to put this these feelings into words and, and go on this path of understanding and try, and try and write about it. So that's what I did. I just sort of observed her really closely for three years and just tried to capture some of the wonder of it. And one of the nicest things, probably the nicest thing that people say to me about my writing is in, in relation to that book, they've said that reading that book has helped them to see their own children's development differently. It's not that they've learned anything. It's not that I've developed any theory or anything like that. There's nothing of my own theory in it. But it's sim I was able to, I was privileged to be able to sort of stop and listen and watch and write things down for a, for a magical period of a few years. And many people don't have that chance to do that. And I was able to put some of that down. And it, the wonderful thing, you know, when people say to me that it's helped them to appreciate their own children a little bit more. 
Did you find, I mean, in terms of the division between being an objective viewer and obviously the subjectivity of the fact that it is your child and, you know, the different senses of love, the different ways that we do look at the action. You know, did you find yourself, as you wrote it, and in, anything in terms of you going, oh, this is the parent me and this is the scientist me and this is that moment of where I see how perhaps emotionally uh, this engagement changes me as a human being? I just wonder how much about you, the observations of yourself rather than uh, when, you, when you finish writing it and look back. Well, I think it's a, it's a lot about myself. I think it's, and I hope that stands for the experience of becoming a parent and separating those two things out. I and mean, when I tried to do it, and I, I tried to be clear in certain places, like here I'm talking about Piaget's theory, for example, mm. and here I'm responding as a, as a parent. But they've completely run together. And yeah, the book is as much about my own sort of foibles and concerns and anxieties and intentions and hopes and so on. But then parenthood kind of is as well. We, can, we don't keep ourselves out of parenthood. We're constantly imposing our own sort of wishes and desires and ambitions and so on, um, even down to something as simple as choosing a name for a baby. You know, that is, that is our work that we do when we, when we pick a name for the little one. You know, we, we're saying something massive about who we are, what we aspire to and so on. So all the way through, it's very hard to separate out your emotions. But why would you? You know, why would you want to be... Darwin, it's great that you mentioned Darwin, because um, Darwin did try to be um, scientific about the children. He wrote in particular about his son, Doddy, who was... I think Doddy's real name was William, but for some reason, what, you know, you call him Doddy, why not? Um, and his wife actually moaned about it. She said, if, you, if, we, have a, if we have a baby, you're going to treat it as a... She used the word it. She <laughs> did treat it as a subject of scientific inquiry and you'll be terrible to live with, basically, words to that effect. So, you know, you can try and do it. I don't think it really gets you very far. It was much more fun to me to leave my emotions fully in there mm. and try and tell a different... Try and find a different way of telling that story. The only thing I have done is I've been serially scanning my son... Um, because you can use the brain scanner to uh, look at somebody's articulators, actually look at them talking, look at their mouth moving, look at their tongue moving, uh, to look what happens when his voice breaks, because I want to know. <laughs> and I'm sure that will be great, and he won't be at all cross with me. But <laughs> I, I genuinely think that could be amazing to see. So every Sunday he's placed in the machine and has to sing Walking in the Air. My goodness. That's... Uh... You're not far wrong. <laughs> we better cut that out so she can keep her child. The, um... Charles, I want to move on to... Because you're, I, I, I was fascinated by the work that you do in terms of um, the inner voices that, that, that we hear. And this is, this is something that I talked about in, in a specific version. I did a stand-up show uh, a few years ago where I talked about when you're holding a baby and suddenly you get a little thought in your head where you go, oh, my God, I just imagined throwing the baby down the stairs. I must have a desire to throw babies downstairs. Um, oh, Daisy, take the baby back. I, my arms feel tired. I didn't just imagine throwing her down the stairs. You want her back? Okay. And I would tell the audience, I would often say to the audience who's had those thoughts, and I'll tell you what, some places the hands are very slow going up. But um, <laughs> Lyme Regis, very fast, but they actually felt like they had an urge. Um, and, and then I explained about the fact that, what, from what I could gather, those kind of thoughts, these imps of the mind, are actually, they're warnings. They're, they're not desires, they're public information films that basically say, you're holding a baby, so remember, when holding a baby, don't throw it down the stairs. <laughs> now that, to me, is part, that's only a very small part of what you were talking about, that when you talk about the fact that, you know, for some people, it seems their brains can be busier 
than, than others when you talk. I mean, of course, we never know because we're always observing the outside. But that, that busyness of voices, when did you first become interested, Charles, in, in thinking about what, how many things are going on in the brain? How many, you know, what appear to be verbalized homunculi are in there? It started with my PhD research, actually. I was interested, I was a developmental psychologist. I was interested in how babies and children develop. And in particular, I was interested in how children come to talk to themselves. Somewhere around about age three, you find kids really starting to use a lot of what we call private speech. So this is speech which is for themselves. They're talking to themselves. They're not talking to anyone else. It might be stimulated by other people's presence, but they really seem to be talking to themselves. They're doing it out loud, and it seems to have some functions. It seems to be doing something. It's helping them to work out what they're doing in a course of play. It's helping them to solve a problem, to think about the future, to think about the past, and so on. So I got interested in that research, and it involved a lot of painstaking going over videotapes. Remember them, you know, rewinding a videotape with this sort of knob and just trying to work out exactly what this little kid was saying to him or herself at that moment. Really laborious work, but fascinating, because to me it often offered the chance to solve a centuries-old, a millennia-old problem of how thought and language work together. Do we think in words? If so, what what qualities does that bring to our thinking? And I didn't really end up solving that problem, thankfully. I don't think that problem will be solved. But it it was a really interesting way of thinking differently about how thought and language work together. And then I got interested in how, according to a certain theory from this Russian psychologist, uh, Vygotsky, this speech that we do out loud audibly when we're kids, over time that becomes internalised. It's like it all becomes taken on and it becomes this conversation in our, in our heads. So the idea very simply is that we start off by having social conversations when we're babies and with small children. Those become internalised so that we take them on by ourselves, we just talk to ourselves out loud and then over time we're doing it all silently up here. So it was a way of understanding where inner speech comes from and what it's doing and so on. So I got interested in inner speech. There'd been very little research done on it. Hardly anybody had tried to study it, mainly because it's a really difficult thing to study because you can't observe it. You have to ask people to report on their experiences and find other ways of kind of interfering with inner speech so you can see what effect it has. And then I became interested in this, this other phenomenon which is the experience of hearing voices. So some people have the experience of hearing a voice in their head when there's no one else around. We tend to associate it with severe mental illness, with disorders such as schizophrenia. People with a diagnosis of schizophrenia, around about 70% of them will hear voices. So will people with a whole range of other psychiatric diagnoses, so everything from borderline personality disorder to eating disorders Mm -hmm. to PTSD, a whole range of different diagnoses are associated with hearing voices. Then you have a group of people who hear voices quite regularly. In fact, Sophie and I collaborated on a study that we published last year where we worked specifically with people who hear voices quite regularly. They're not ill, they're not distressed by this experience, they don't have a psychiatric diagnosis, they shouldn't have a psychiatric diagnosis, but they do hear voices quite regularly. They're quite hard to find. We did find some. We did a a brain imaging uh, study with them. And then there's us lot. You know, most people in this room will have had some kind of fleeting experience of hearing a voice, very commonly on the verges of sleep, but somewhere between 5 and 15% of us 
will have had the experience of, for example, hearing our name called when we, we stop and we look around and there's nobody there. So fleeting, one-off kind of hearing voice experiences are, are really quite common. So I got interested in where that stuff happens, why, why that stuff happens, where that comes from. Was it related to this ordinary inner speech, this ordinary internal conversation that we have going on in our heads? And actually, lots of people had already proposed that it was related. And very simply, the theory goes that when somebody hears a voice, what's happening is that they are actually talking to themselves. They're generating a bit of inner speech silently in their head. But for some reason, they don't recognise that it's their own work. They don't recognise that they themselves have done that bit of inner speech. So it's experienced as something that's coming from outside. And that was really the starting point for me about 10, 12 years ago of, of getting into this line of research on hearing voices. See, I find it fascinating that if, if I had to say what any of the voices that I have in my head sound like, they actually don't have any sound, mm. and yet you can hear them. They're not a, they're not a ticker tape, they're not, a, they're not something that's being written, uh, but actually if you try and say... I mean, that's why I think sometimes when I'm on my own and I do talk to myself out loud, uh, and sometimes when I'm not on my own, it just depends on my mood, and, and sometimes people think I'm talking to them, but I'm not really, um, that I actually... That, that does then become, you can give accent to sometimes different voices in your head. But the voice in your head very often are a strange... I, I, that's the bit that I find hardest to in any way turn into something tangible. Like even when I was sitting watching you there talk about that, and I had a little thought, and then I was like going, but what is there? There's no accent there, there's no... Charles made a very good point when he was first telling me about this, which I'm now going to say, but you please feel free to correct me where I'm wrong on this, but there's a degree of it, so sometimes it's almost like a frame. It's like a space that there are words in it, and it's not got a voiciness to it. And sometimes it's a bit more voicey, and sometimes it's really voicey, and that what seems to be one of the things that's different there is how emotional it's getting. So for me, if I'm talking with myself and it starts to get emotional, just before I actually start saying something aloud, like, oh, for God's sake, Sophie it would have got really voice-like in my head. And that's, so that, that's certainly, for me, the, the emotionality of what's being discussed does seem to strongly correlate with how voicey it is. is that, have I completely misremembered that? No, I think you've got it spot on. And the key thing is that this research just hasn't been done. I mean, we started to ask questions about the qualities of inner speech in some research published, I don't know, about eight years ago now. Um, for the first time, really, saying to people, does your inner speech have an accent? Mm. It can still be voicey without an accent. It can have tone, it can have pitch, it can mm. have timbre, it can have emotional um, quality, you know, uh, it, it can have um, tone of voice and so on. It can have all these other things that are not necessarily just about accent. But some people's inner speech has accents. I mean, there's some lovely research showing that actually our own external accent, the accent that we speak in, seems to affect the, the way that we talk to ourselves in our inner speech as well. So potentially inner speech has this incredible richness and range, but we're only just starting to ask the questions. Mm. So we really don't know. We, not everybody uses inner speech. So that all that centuries-old problem about whether we think in language, well, no, because some people don't have language. Some people have language and don't seem to use it, don't seem to do very much inner speech at all. So it can't be an essential for thinking. And certainly, a, sorry, just really quickly, a colleague of mine who had a classic Broca's area stroke, so she lost the bit of brain here that seems to be really important for planning and organising the production of speech. She, she's back at work. I mean, she's functioning extremely well. She has some difficulty talking, but she can talk and she can write. 
And she says she has no inner speech at all, just none, none of it. So she's, you know, I'm not saying life's easy for her, but she's, she's working and she's doing every, you know, very similar level of work to do how she was managing before she had this horrible stroke. And the, that's all just with the inner speech totally gone. The problem is, how do we study it? Yeah. This is a really difficult thing. I've started to work with a, a method called descriptive experience sampling, which is a way of using a beeper, basically, and getting good at using, getting experience of reporting on your own experience. Just before the beep goes off, you, get, you learn to get good at reporting on what was in your mind just before the beep went off. And what you find is that most people get quite good at doing this over the course of a few days. Um, when they do so, they often find that their presuppositions about what kind of mind they have are overturned. So I, for example, before I started using this technique, I would have said, I'm doing inner speech all the time. I've got that kind of mind. You know, I'm constantly talking to myself. I bet many of you would do the same, actually. But when you do this method or a method like it, and you look in the cold light of day about what was going on in your head, you find there's much less inner speech than you thought there was, or, or that you've been mistaken in some other way about what's in your head. See, I find that interesting because I think, and I might be wrong now, but, but I find, like, generally when I'm on stage, there's about three di lines of, of different direction going on, which I think are kind of inner voices, and then one which is merely creating stuff, the improvising thing, which has come out before you've actually been able to direct it, or at least, you know, consciousness. But whereas, because I find that if I do switch off, then I'm startled the moment I think, hang on a minute, what, I, I don't write 30 seconds, there's something 30 seconds I wasn't monitoring these things that I would. I, I find that a very regular uh, experience, which is that I have to be blah, 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 you know, there has to be noise going on there. But it is probably just noise, as again on many of my gigs. But it's, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm interested if I, if I started to... Because I think I'm observing it already. I, I, I started, started therapy after writing this book. It didn't cure me at all. It made me worse. Um, <laughs> going to see a North London Freudian. How? Hack. And, uh, but I've, and I was worried. She'd tell me I was fine and I didn't need to do stand-up anymore. But she said <laughs> she's expecting it to take ages. Um, but it's, but that, when we were talking about going behind the thing that watches you at all state, I, I said, I don't I have no idea. Yeah, this is part of what is fascinating about the brain to me, which is if you remove the thing that is perpetually observing, you have the observer and the observer and the observer. If you remove that, is there nothing behind? Is being human this... Uh, lots of the things that we think are necessary to survive as being human, like when you were saying about your friend, the Brockers area, stuff like that, that actually as things are stripped apart somehow, zombie-like or not, we would continue. And that so much of the rest of it is an affectation which is deemed to be part of civilization. I think there's a lot of storytelling. I think there's a lot of fabrication. There's a lot of confabulation. There's a lot of this, us imposing a narrative on our experience just so it makes sense to us. And we do that in our inner speech. I think, I think we do that in memory. I think we do that in a lot of the things we do. We do that as a species. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff layered on top of what I think you're trying to get at, which is what's actually in my head. Mm. And it is interesting that you can have, if you just look at the effects of head injuries and things that can go wrong, you don't ever end up with somebody who behaves like a zombie. You can have somebody who's got great difficulty moving or perhaps making themselves understood, but other things will be working fine. So Rosemary Varley's done this beautiful work with 
people with profound um, agrammaticism. So they've had huge strokes. It's taken out speech perception, speech production. You have to communicate with them with drawings. And they can do logic problems. They can solve theory of mind. They can do maths better than the control groups because they're old and they learn how to do it properly. <laughs> and they're doing all of that. And apparently, not only without, presumably, you know, in a, in a speech as we would think of it, but most language. So, you know, it's a tremendously... Um, you know, we can be robbed of a lot of things. I suppose what I'm saying, very roundabout way, vast amounts of stuff that we do, we don't have consciousness of and we don't need consciousness of. There's this new book, um, Nick Chater's book, The Mind is Flat, and he argues that in the same way that we kind of have a, an illusion of a sort of completion of our perceptual world because our brain fills stuff in. So if I look at you, I'm actually not really seeing the people around you. I feel like I am because my brain's having quite a good guess. But if I moved across to you and then back again, you could have changed all sorts of stuff while I was moving my eyes and I, wouldn't, I don't see that. And he argues that cognition works the same way. That whatever you're doing at any one time feels very surrounded by detail and completion, but that's as much of an illusion as your brain filling in the perceptual world around you. So there may be a lot, at the same time, a lot less to thinking than there may be in that it's, it's being filled in with all this extra stuff and you don't really have much access to the stuff that's really doing the work. But in a way, that's the... It's, it's the stuff around it. It's the storytelling that mm. is the most interesting stuff for me as a psychologist and, and as a human being and as a writer and so on. I, I, I would enti I entirely agree with you. I don't think it makes it uninteresting. I mm. think it just means that it's, it, that kind of illusion of it is... It's kind of an interesting way of looking at it. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. Sorry, I'm So when I talk about memory, I do events on memory, sometimes people get really angry, actually, when you tell them that their earliest memories are probably largely fabricated. You caused my brother to get cross with me because we went back and worked out my first memory, which is the same as his first memory, and his is totally wrong because I was a year older. And he's still quite cross. Sorry. People, people do. Sorry about that. No, people, do, people do get truth really hurts, upset Toby. about it. Because the, we, one reason is we hold our earliest memories so dear that we see them as sort of foundational for the self. What I want to say to people when they react like this, as I'm um, running for the door, is don't worry about the fact that they're partly fictional or they're reconstructed or that you've been telling yourself a story. Because it's your story. It's who you are. This is how, this is one of the ways you make yourself who you are. This is one of the ways in which you narrate your own experience and your existence, if you like. Value that, celebrate that, enjoy that, marvel at it, but don't, don't worry about it. Don't let it be a cause of distress. Is that ever a worry in terms of, as we do, I'm thinking about books also like things like the, 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 the self-illusion. You know, there's a lot of talk where the self doesn't even really exist. You go, well, it kind of does. It might not exist in terms of, in some objective manner, equation and research-wise, but it does exist. It yeah. exists for our pragmat... The way that we move through life, the illusion of self cannot be removed without actually the removal of personality and all those things. And as I was thinking about, was it um, Daniel Dennett used to talk about that idea that he got worried sometimes if, if people, when people just say, well, free will's an illusion, the whole thing's an, an illusion, no one has free will. He says, you know, does that lead to the point where I think in his thought experiment, it's uh, someone has a brain operation and uh, after the operation's been done, uh, the surgeon says, oh, by the way, uh, I, um, I put a little thing inside your brain that means every now and again I can control you. 
He goes, oh, okay. And anyway, he goes off and does loads of murders. And then when he's in court, uh, he says, it wasn't my fault. She put a thing in my brain when she did that operation. She went, no, I didn't. I was joking. Oh. You know, this idea that you lose the... So, so in some ways... I, I don't know. Sorry, I'm asking it in a very roundabout way. But that, I, I always find that bit interesting where you go, do you know what? It might actually turn out this whole thing is an illusion, but you remove the illusion and you remove humanity. Mm. You remove storytelling. You remove those things. You know, free will, finding out you don't have free will. How the hell does that ever change your life? Someone, I remember talking about this when we did a show on the Infinite Monk Cage about free will. This guy wrote to me, he said, do we have free will or not? I need to know because if we don't have free will, there's a girl that I want to go out with and there seems no reason that, for me to ask her. I said, how, if I tell you one way or the other, how are you going to make a decision? He says, well, if you tell me there's no free will, I'm not going to ask her. I said, well, how are you going to make that choice? And so yeah. you can't, yeah. you, you know, oh, I've got no free will, so... Well, you've just made a choice to sit in your chair and do nothing. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I, when I talked to you for the book, and I thought this was a very useful thing that you said, which is that you don't have to worry that everything that your brain produces in terms of its dialogues, monologues, whatever it might be, is necessarily has to be yours. That you, you basically talked a little bit about the fact that sometimes it might just be the sound of machinery and you shouldn't obsess too much, go, my God, where did that thought come from? Is that the real me? You know, the idea of the being... And I thought that was, that was a really... For, for sometimes when... And I, and I have spoken to quite a few people when I've done gigs, when I've talked about some of the ideas of mental health. They will get... You can get plagued, you know, you can become very obsessive mm. about what may have been one single thought, whatever inspired it, whatever it was going on. And I just, you know... Could you enlarge on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think there is a... One of the things our brain does, and there's a particular network, the default mode network, which seems to be largely involved in this, is just kind of chuck out ideas, chuck out scenarios, chuck out, um, you know, ways in which the world could be, which might then turn into bits of imagination, might turn into memory, might turn into predictions about the future and so on. It's how you react to them. It's how you make sense of them. It's how you feel emotionally about them. And, and my favourite example of this, the, the different ways in which people can respond, is a literary one. It's from Dr Johnson and, and James Boswell. So two men who worked and travelled and you know, worked very closely together. Johnson was terrified about losing his mind. He was the cleverest man in the country. He was, his livelihood depended on being really, really clever and keeping control of his faculties and not going mad. They both had the same experiences, but where Johnson was terrified and worried about what his mind was doing, Boswell was like, yeah, bring it on. There's some weird shit going on here today. I'm going to run around on Hampstead Heath and enjoy it. You know, they, had, they had very different attitudes to their own minds. One ended up being more balanced and, and happier and well-adjusted than the other. And that's just a sort of microcosm of how changing one's attitudes to what our minds do can play a part in our mental well-being. It applies with memory, it applies with voices, it applies with a lot of different things. Well, I, I found, it, it, again, we should probably talk more about this, but when you were first, because one of the reasons I interviewed you initially was because I was... I was Fascinating, but most of the book is kind of about the starting point is comedy, and then hopefully it goes into more general. So, Nina Conti, talking to Nina Conti about the fact that I used to think with ventriloquists that sometimes they'd look at their puppet and think, I can't believe my puppet just said that. Where did that come from? But Nina was kind of more like, No, I spend the rest of my life going, Why did you say that? 
that was boring. And then she puts the sock on and goes, now I can talk. You know, and I thought that was... And you talked about, again, that intrusive voices, these people, to this way of almost using a form of what would be seen as, you know, ventriloquism, that bit of creating faces for those voices that may well be difficult. Yeah, in terms of therapy for mm. voices, I mean, our project collaborates with the Avatar Therapy team uh, based in London, and what they're doing is working with people with schizophrenia who hear voices and helping the patients to create a visual representation of the voice that is bothering them. And then the therapist will take on the role of the face, will kind of get behind the face, as it, as it were, through digital technology and, and speak to the patient. And the patient is trained in basically asserting him or herself over the nasty voice. And for some patients, it seems to have a tremendous effect. But other kinds of, you know, things like that go on elsewhere in therapy that aren't necessarily so technologically advance so being able to have enter into a dialogue with your voices or to do so through the help of a therapist to talk to your voice and find out more about it and engage it can also be very effective for some people who are bothered by distressing voices um i just i find it how much time we've got left Trent? one minute great so we've got <laughs> 10 minutes the um very uh this is, what are the least, I mean, I've mentioned this because Matthew Cobb's in the audience who uh, has taken time off from finishing his book, which he's going to do tomorrow uh, from Manchester University. Um, and I made Matthew uh, read Robert Newman's book about neuroscience, which, as you know, Sophie, infuriated me and I felt was filled with uh, both mis- and disinformation. And uh, Matthew, what did you reckon? Yeah, it was a really, and I genuinely feel terrible. I, I've, I've never said this publicly. It was over a year ago that I read it, and I've been very careful about saying this, but I felt so disturbed by the fact that I meet people who think it's a science book, and they think that, you know, one of the things as a comic that I've always said when I do any shows about science is if there's anything I say that in any way interests you, don't tell your friends until you've at the very least Googled it first. I may well be wrong. And I wondered in terms of, what you find are the, are the ideas that are out there at the moment, or indeed maybe books or published things of the past where you think, this is not helping at all, the, the, these ideas. And I know that might be putting you in... in the... Oh, how long have you got? But, I mean, the two, <laughs> well, he said one my... minute, but I said 20, 20, it's fine. <laughs> so, the, I mean, obviously an enduring one is you only use 10% of your brain, and this is wrong, so don't worry, just don't worry about that. Um, the other one is that there's big and systematic differences between male and female brains because male brains are bigger than female brains and that's, that remains the stage after you've adapted for body size, you account for that. Female brains contain a greater proportion of um, grey matter than male brains, uh, which is the sort of computational bit of a brain. You could think of that as a more efficient brain, but it's not a competition. Um, beyond that, it's actually very, very hard to find anything. Now, again, question of scale, maybe we're not, you know... but. Testosterone does not work in the brain the way it works in the rest of the body. It's aromatized into an estrogen. It has a different sort of function. So it's, in, there are, it's very interesting that we have... Um, we will account for differences between male and female behavior on the basis of brains, and we're very happy with things like that. Where the science, and I say, there's still lots of things I'm sure we could find out, but at the moment, the science is not there. I, I pre oh, we haven't got time. But I, just, I, mean, I presume... But part of it is that because the moment that we're born we're having experience. And therefore, because someone did tell me, and again, I don't know how true this is, that if you looked at the brain of a male child and a female child at their point just after birth, uh, there would be no way that you could, our current understanding of knowing that, so 
the moment that culture comes in there, I presume that that, you know, if there is... When you do find differences, it's very hard to say, because every single brain in this room is different, primarily because of the experiences you've had. Your brain will look different depending on, have you learned to speak multiple languages? Do you play a musical instrument? What kind of education have you gone through? Have you learned to read? I work with brains every day, and by far the least interesting aspect of brains is whether or not it comes from a man or a woman. I want to know, do you play a musical instrument? I want to know, do you, it, it, all the other sorts of expertise and predispositions, those can be things that would be interacting with the experiences you've had to result in the brain that you've got now. But if they don't work out the box, we grow them. So it's very, even when you do find differences, which, let me reiterate, are very, very hard to find, you find that it doesn't, it's very hard to rule out uh, you know, an environmental role for it. So it's, and it, it's just becoming a full trope. I learned yesterday because of Rose George's excellent new book about blood, Nine Pints, in Japan, people will refer to their blood type to excuse behaviour. Oh, it's because you're type B. You're very impulsive. Now, we never do that. We kind of care about brains and sex. We never ever go, yeah, I knew that. A type O would do that. You know, so we, we cultures pick the things that they decide oh, to attribute God, stuff it's, it's to. It's like the, the, the Twinkie alibi in the, the dreadful case of the, the murder of Harvey Milk, you know, where the guy basically, because he'd been eating a lot of Twinkies, was one of the things, and that's the kind of thing that mm. led him to assassinate someone. Um, the... Uh, Charles, have you got anything that's your kind of pet where you find yourself in a party and going, oh, no, 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 you've been reading that book and that's not, that's not the best way of looking at the human brain and the human mind? Well, I think all the things mentioned, plus the sort of right brain, left brain oh. thing. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to finish on a more positive note, and that is when you actually work with people, uh, brilliant scientists like Sophie, who um, do this day in, day out, the thing that strikes you first is the humility in the sense of humility in all sorts of ways, but particularly in, in relation to what we don't know. Scientists are constantly saying, we don't know. Maybe we can find out. What if we do this? Maybe we'll learn. Maybe I'll, we'll push our knowledge on a bit further. But all the good scientists say, we basically don't know. We're going to try and, we're going to try and get there. We're not going to give up. We're not going to say it's unknowable. But in relation to the brain, most people's reaction is to stand and stare in, in wonder. And that's when you know you're working with a really good scientist who actually stands a chance of getting something done and finding something out. What's your favourite film that has brains in a jar in it? <laughs> um, it young, what's the Frankenstein with Marty Feldman? Young Frankenstein's yeah, got Marty Feldman, Don't yeah. use this brain. Yeah. I was obviously going to go with Dr. Hafar. It would probably be a brains. Doctor Who episode. Was the one with oh, brain, with, brain of Morbius. Yeah, yes, that's, that one. That's a cracking one, yeah. The, uh, there's also a brilliant one which is based on uh, a guy used to write for the Twilight Zone, Charles Beaumont. It stars Bud Court and various others, and it's not brain damage. You look it up, and we'll put it on the thing afterwards. You have a negative ten minutes. Uh, <laughs> we don't. This is a science museum, and I've spoken to physicists, and they say time, much like the self, is very much an illusion. So... Um, <laughs> Thank you very much to Charles and to Sophie. Uh, Sophie will have a book out eventually, I know, because I know you've been working on it and working on it and working on it. Charles, as, as I said, there, there's uh, Voices Within, Baby in the Mirror. They're fantastic. Uh, thank you very much to uh, Trent for coming up and producing the show. Thank you very much to the uh, Manchester uh, Science Festival and Museum of uh, Science and Industry. And thank you very much for coming down. So, bye-bye.
Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Back again with a new episode next week, of course. Don't forget to check out the Brain Yapping podcast as well with Rachel England and Dean Burnett. Uh, What we think is quite an important episode uh, has just gone out this week. Uh, Rachel was set upon by an online hate mob, uh, kind of fueled by some tweets by a particular British breakfast show uh, TV presenter. Uh, So they've done a special episode about that, about about how these online hate mobs and pylons uh, start the the psychology behind that uh, and obviously dealing with it as well, which is uh, something Rachel unfortunately had to deal with in the past few weeks. So go to cosmicshambles.com slash brain yapping or search for brain yapping wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a listen. We hope you find that entertaining and helpful as well and... Uh, Leave a review for that on iTunes and stuff. As always, share and share a, a bound. I was going to say share and share a bound, but that doesn't sound like a real sentence that a human would say. So you know what I mean, though. Uh, so anyway, uh, yes, back next week. Enjoy your week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support on Patreon. That is all from me. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.